Uh, as Brother Monty mentioned, we're going to do half-ish of Romans chapter 8. We're splitting this into two parts. I would have just done half of it, but it would have been a very strange break uh, to, go through chap- to go through verse 20 and stop. So it's, it seemed like a, a more reasonable place to stop here in verse 17. And uh, Romans 8 is one of those chapters that is huge. And, and I don't mean in number. It's just 39 verses, but it's huge in thought, huge in idea. It's huge in doctrine. And so I'm going to be, try to be very careful. You probably heard somebody say, you need to stay in your lane. I'm going to try to stay in my lane tonight and not get too broad with this because uh, there are a lot of questions that will arise from this chapter, uh, some that perhaps Brother Monty might talk about next week because he's going to have a, a little bit larger dose on the Holy Spirit. We're not going to get into the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and exactly how that works. We're going to touch on the work of the Spirit a little bit tonight. Um, we're also going to talk about free will a little bit tonight. Um, but what I want to do at the beginning is we're going to go backwards. And I literally mean we're going backwards. We're going to go through some things that we've looked at. And we're going to start in chapter 7 and move backwards for a moment. And I want to uh, do this for a reason because this is kind of a climactic part of this book. And so Paul makes this statement, there is therefore now and that word now is extremely important because throughout this book you have now and then you have then you've got the past you've got the present and so we're going to look through some of that just to begin so we can understand where then is maybe we can understand why he says there's therefore now so let's go right back to chapter 7 for a moment Romans chapter 7 verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. If you remember Brother Justin's lesson on this, he did a very good job of outlining for us the point of Romans 7 that Paul is talking about the relationship of the law as it pertains to man. And he, he did a very good job of explaining that because it's important for us to understand Paul is not just giving a chapter where he talks about the inward struggle, but he gives us a view into the inward struggle of man under law. And that's important for us to understand because our struggle under grace looks very similar to what it looks like for man who is under law, but the outcome is very different. And so Paul not only talks about the struggle, but talks about the outcome. But this is the point that Paul's making here in verse 5. When we were in the flesh, do you see the past tense of that? When we were in the flesh, what, you mean we're not in the flesh now? No, we're not. Now that doesn't mean literally, and we'll, talk, we'll go into more detail about this idea here in a moment. But he says, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions or our lusts or desires which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. What is the law? What did Justin tell us? The old law is a law of sin and death. That's what it is. Now, the law was ordained to bring life, but it brought death. Why? Because nobody except for Jesus Christ, lived and died under the law perfect. Every single person that lived under Moses' law broke Moses' law. And so it became a law of sin and death. And notice verse 6, but now, there's that word again, but now we have been delivered from what? From the law, having died to that which we were held by. 
we died to the law so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. He's already started talking about this idea about then and now, but he actually started much earlier than that. Look at verse uh, 17 of chapter 6. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been fr set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Again, highlighted in yellow is the then, and in the blue, the now. You were slaves of sin, he says, but you're not now. You've been set free from sin. You've become slaves of righteousness. Now, I want us to stop for a moment. I want us to think about the discussion in Romans chapter 7 where Paul goes into detail where he says, I'm carnal, sold under sin. Do you know what that phrase means, sold under sin? It literally means I'm a slave to sin. Paul just said in Romans 6, we're not slaves to sin. And then in Romans 7, he says, I am a slave to sin. Why? Because he's not talking about him in the present. He's talking about man under law. I'm carnal. We're going to notice here in a minute, he says, we're not carnal. He's putting himself in the place of a person who is struggling with the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And under law, you're still a slave to sin. You're still carnal. You're still in need of deliverance. You're still in need of freedom. Romans chapter 5 verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Here's another, then and now. We were the enemies of God when, before we were in Christ. But now, he says, we have been reconciled to God. And we'll talk about reconciliation a little more as we get into our study. Back in chapter 3, he says, now we know that whatsoever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Let's go ahead and look at, this, look at these couple of verses here before we jump into Romans chapter 8 to identify something. And we're going to be a little bit repetitive from last week. What is the purpose of the law? To bring about guilt to bring about an awareness or a consciousness, if you will, of sin. And he says, no one is saved by the law in the sight of God. That's what the word justified means. It means to be cleared from guilt or to be pardoned or to have your sins remitted. Nobody is justified by the sight of God. How? Through the deeds of the law. Now, he did not say no one was ever justified under the law. He didn't say that. He said the law did not justify them. There were plenty of men who lived and died under the old law who are going to be in heaven, who were saved. Men like David. Was David lost because he lived under the law and the law couldn't justify him? No, that's not the point he's making. The point he's making is that the law itself doesn't justify and keeping the law doesn't justify. So you may be thinking to yourself, well, then how is David saved? And we're going to get to that here in a moment. I'm just singling David out. We could talk about others like Hezekiah or Samuel or, or other men of God. But make sure that we understand this principle. The law does not save. It was never meant to save. And I don't have this on the screen, but you might recall Galatians chapter 3.19 that Justin also brought to our attention. That if the law couldn't do that, then what was the purpose of the law? He said it was added because of sins until the seed should come. That's Jesus to whom the promise was made and it was ordained in the hands of a mediator, by the hand of a mediator. 
And then he goes on to say, if there would have been a law or could have been a law which could have given life, verily righteousness would have been by the law. If God could have just given a law that could have done what we needed, that could have justified us, that could have given us life, that's what God would have done. He would have just given us a second law to follow. But that's not the nature of law. If that's what God was going to do, it would have been the law of Moses that would have done it. But law is not what makes man just. In fact, Paul talks about another law in Romans 7, a different kind of law. Not a law that's written down, not a code of law, not, not an ethical law or a legal code, but a law that is a fact. We might talk, think of it like a law of nature, something that is, that is irrefutable, something that is exactly uh, a reality in life. And he says it's this, I find a law that is present within me. What is it? Evil. Brother Monty, pray that in the prayer tonight. We're sinners and we do things that are outside of God's will. Why? Because there's a law in us that evil is present within us. Even though we will to do good, you notice what he says, the one who wills to do good. That's Paul talking about himself. I will to do good. But I find a law and he said, I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, which is what delights in the law of God, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. There again, that idea of bringing me into captivity. And what's he say? Oh, wretched man that I am. Listen, this is what happens to man under law. No hope. That's man under law. If you try to be justified by your own deeds, if you try to follow the law and be right and just, here's where you're going to end up. Oh, wretched man that I am. Paul is not saying I'm a wretched man in need of deliverance. That's not what he's saying there. Paul already knew he was delivered and he knew who delivered him. And in fact, the next verse says, I thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's delivered me. It's a question a conclusive question based on all that he just said about the law and how futile it is for man to even try to be right under the law it's impossible why is it impossible because you can try to do right and you'll still do wrong you can hate the wrong that you're doing and you'll still do it because there's a law that evil is within you, you do have lust, you will commit sin, you will do that which is wrong, you will do what you hate. You know when that starts? Before you even understand what's right and what's wrong. When's the first time one of your kids told a lie? My oldest is 17. First time he told a lie, I think he was two. <laughs> I said, did you do that? You know what he did? He knocked over a bucket of black paint in our carpet when we lived over it on Faulkner Street. And I was like, did you do that? And he goes, mm. I was like, are you sure? He's like, mm. I'm like, well, we don't have a dog. I mean, and it's just us three. Are you sure? Nope. I mean, we knew he did it. And it's wrong to lie, right? It's wrong. But do you think that at two years old, God looked down and he said, oh, I'm going to impute that sin to that two-year-old boy. No. No, he didn't. Why? 
Because there also must be a knowledge of the law. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans 7 verse 9. He says, I was alive without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. You know what that means? The commandment came. It's the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. When they ate the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and their eyes were open. When their eyes were, not, were open and they knew what was right and they knew what was wrong, that's when sin was given life. And that sin with its life and its power killed Adam and Eve that day, just like it did Paul. The first time he understood what covetousness was, his first thought was, it's too late, I've already coveted. That's how hopeless it is to be just by the law. Because you're already condemned before you understand it. And the moment you understand it, the only understanding you have is I'm already condemned. You can't be saved by law. Oh, wretched man that I am. Under the law, what we have noticed is that sin is imputed under law. Sin brings forth slavery under law. Sin made us enemies of God under law. It's a law of sin and death. It's a law of hopelessness. Now let's talk about grace. What's the point of grace? What does grace look like? We, grace is not just some abstract term that we just throw up on a wall and say it means favor. No, it has fruit. Grace is something tangible. There's an outcome of grace and that's exactly what Paul identifies in this letter. Under grace, you are justified from sin. That means God does not impute your sin to you, even though you have it. Even though you deserve for him to impute. That is to count your sin or put it on your account. God chooses not to. That's grace. Sin brings forth slavery under the law, but through Christ and in grace... We are freed from the bondage of sin. We make ourselves the enemy to God, but through grace, not through law, but through the grace, we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And then what happens? He said, you have your fruit unto holiness in the end, everlasting life. He said, you committed sin and bore fruit unto death, but through Christ, you have your fruit unto holiness and to everlasting life. Why? Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift that is the grace of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay, now let's get to Romans 8. One more verse, though. <laughs> Where do you want to live? Where do you want to live? That's his point. He's writing this to people who are very confused. And he's showing them, he's drawing it in crayon. And going, look, you don't want to live there. You don't want to be under that law. Because that's all it is. So Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now. There's therefore now no condemnation to who? To those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, here's one of those conditional clauses. 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Didn't Paul just get finished saying in Romans 7, I'm carnal. I have a fleshly nature. I've got a law in my flesh. Yes, he did. But look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What is Paul describing in Romans 7? The law of sin and death. The law that's in his members that leads him toward death because he has a proclivity or an inclination to commit sin. What do you say? Grace has made me free from that slavery. How? We're not there yet. We'll get there. This is now. Let me ask you something about now. In the now, do we ever commit sin? Yep. You think Paul committed sin? I do. I know Peter did. Even after he, even after Jesus was resurrected, even after he became a gospel preacher and went out everywhere, I know Peter sinned because it outlines it for us in Galatians 2. I mean, he was caught up in a pretty grievous sin such as that garnered Paul to come up to him and withstand him to the face in front of everybody because it was that type of sin. But let me ask you a question. Were these men under condemnation when they committed a sin? See, I think that's a very false idea that has been perpetuated over and over and over that, that there's just this yo-yo effect that when I commit a sin, a sin, that I fall out of God's grace and I pray myself back into God's grace. That's not in the scriptures. One sin does not take us out of the grace of God. One sin. And we're going to get into that in more detail. But listen, Paul is saying there is therefore now no condemnation. And walk in the spirit is not sinless perfection if it was then Paul and Peter neither one walked in the spirit because it, but it's not sinless perfection but I'll tell you what it is it's walking in liberty it's walking in freedom from the law of sin and death and we'll get to that in more detail verse three for what the law could not do in that it was weak to the flesh, God did by sending his own son. We're going to get to the rest of these verses here in a minute. I just want to highlight a couple things, and I want to point this out. There was something the law could not do, but he said, but God did. Do you see that? What the law could not do, God did. What was it the law couldn't do, and what was it that God did by sending his son? Okay, we're going back one more time to Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's then, right? Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation. I'll tell you what the law could not do. It could not justify. It could not redeem. It could not reconcile. That's what it couldn't do. The only way that we could be justified and redeemed and reconciled is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But there's something Jesus had to do first before he could become that perfect sacrifice. But I want to look at the rest of these verses. Verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by 
his blood through faith. Now listen very closely. To demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at this present time or the present time his righteousness. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's think about this. What is he saying? Okay, let's go back to David for a moment. I brought up David just a moment ago. David lived and died under the old law, a law of sin and death. And you know what God did? He forbore David's sins. I'll tell you one particular place. 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan comes to David and says, you killed Uriah and you took his wife and God is not pleased. And then he says, but God has put away your sin. You will not die. Is that fair? Someone might say that's not fair. I mean, under the law, if you commit adultery, you die. Under the law, if you commit murder, you die. Why does David get a pass? How is God just in giving David a pass? You want to know? Look at the verse again. To demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. I'll tell you how God says I'm righteous in looking over, overlooking David's sins. Jesus Christ, that's how. That's how. The same way God declares his righteousness today by forgiving your sins and my sins. God says, I am righteous in forbearing sin. You know why? Look at the cross. I paid for it. That's why. I paid for it. You didn't pay for it. God paid for it. The law could not do that. The law demanded David be put to death. The law would demand you be put to death. But God, to demonstrate his righteousness in being a forgiving, a merciful God, put his son on a cross. And I want to ask you a question. God crushed his son because of your sin. And you really think he's going to give you a pass? He crushed his son. God does not make a mockery of sin. He does not look at it lightly. God punished sin in Jesus because his love is that great. God had to be just. He didn't have to be merciful. He chose to be merciful because he is love. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. He tells us why the law couldn't do it. Again, it goes back to what Paul talked about in Romans 7. It's because of our nature, our carnal nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now listen to verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's that phrase again. I want you to notice something about verse four. He does not say the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled by us. He says it was fulfilled in us through Christ. 
Jesus is the one that met the requirement of the law, the righteous requirement of the law. Well, you know what the righteous requirement of the law is? Keep every one of them and never break one. That was the requirement of the law. And Jesus did that. And so by doing that and then becoming a sacrifice, Jesus could, if you will, transfer his righteousness to us. He could impute his righteousness to us and impute our sin to himself. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. This phrase right here is so important. He defines what it means to live after the flesh or walk after the flesh. We just read that several times, didn't we? What does it mean? To set our mind on the things of the flesh. Whatever you set your mind is, that's what type of life you're going to live. That's where you're going to walk. And if you set your mind on those things, you're going to live after the flesh. But if you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, what are you going to do? You're going to live according to the Spirit. Next verse, verse 6 through 8. Listen, for to be carnally minded is death. Wait, again, Paul just said, I'm carnal, so don't understand. Don't misunderstand what he's, the point he's making. Look at what he says, to be carnally minded, that is to set your mind on the carnal, to live in the carnal, to walk after the carnal, to follow after the carnal, to let sin reign is the phrase that he uses. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You know what, what, what else wasn't under the law? Peace. You say, well, Israel had peaceful times. I'm not talking about peace between men. I'm talking about peace in man. What in the old law ever provided a way for man to have his conscience cleared? The answer is nothing. Go look at Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. And notice what it says. Through the blood of Christ, we can have our conscience purged that's a realization of true freedom from sin that's real David may be forgiven but I'll tell you what David never experienced he never experienced that kind of peace that we take for granted we can know that our sins are forgiven because we live on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ and that peace will empower us to walk in the Spirit. He says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So he makes this statement early in the chapter, we are not in the flesh. He actually made that in Romans chapter 7 as well. We are not in the flesh. What does that mean, not in the flesh? It means we're not following the desires of the flesh. We're not letting the flesh make the decisions. And and understand this, it is a decision. It is a choice that we all have to either walk in the spirit or walk in the flesh. And if it wasn't a choice, why is he writing this letter? Why is he writing these things to them? Why does he tell them to walk if they're incapable of making that choice? 
It would make no sense to command someone to do something that God is in total control over. And what I'm talking about is this idea that being led by the Spirit means God sends the Spirit into us and therefore the Spirit will take control. I'm not questioning that God gives us the Holy Spirit or that the Spirit dwells in us. What I'm questioning is this idea that the Spirit takes control. Think about how that would go against some of the letters that Paul wrote when he writes to the brethren at Corinth and he tells them, hey, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you need to clean this up, you're being carnal, you're fighting. They weren't even taking the Lord's Supper right. Someone says, well, that's, that's, they weren't led by the Spirit because they weren't really Christians. Really? That's where we're going to go? You know what he said in chapter 6? He says, in such were some of you, but you are washed, you are justified, you are sanctified. Even though they had a bunch of problems that he told them, you need to make different choices. Make different choices. Quit walking after the flesh. Quit being carnal. He said, I want to talk to you as spiritual, but I can't because you're still carnal. Quit being carnal and be spiritual. Walk in the spirit. But if you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. I want you to notice that he uses these terms interchangeably. The Spirit of God dwells in you, the Spirit of Christ, and if Christ is in you. He's not talking about three different things. They're all the same thing. Christ dwells in us, how? The Spirit of Christ dwells in us, how? The Spirit of God dwells in us. It's all the same thing. If Christ is in you, he says the body is dead because of sin. And we're going we're gonna to come back to that as we get into our next section. <clears throat> so this is not the only place that Paul taught this. I'm talking about Romans chapter 8. In Colossians 3, he teaches the same thing. Notice the same type of teaching. Set your mind, there it is again, on what? On things above and not on things of the earth. What's he saying? Set your mind on the spiritual, not on the fleshly or the carnal. Why? For you died. You died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. What's that mean? Your life is hidden. It means God has justified you. He's hidden your sin. He's put it away. He's not imputed your sin to you. He says, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. That's a commandment. Put to death. It's not just something that happened. It's something he tells us to do. Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, he says, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Now listen, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. It's the same teaching. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Back to Romans 8. Once again, I want to notice this idea. The body is dead because of sin. You know, we're literal people. We read things. I have a hard time separating the literal from the, from, from the spiritual sometimes or the symbolic. 
or the figurative for that matter. So what does he mean when he says the body is dead because of sin? Well, luckily for us, he's already cleared that up for us in this book just two chapters before. And remember, when these letters were written, they were written as letters. They weren't written as, as books with divided chapters and verses where we're going to go chicken pick this verse over here and chicken pick this verse over here. It's all meant to be read fluidly. It all goes together. It's got a beginning and an end, and everything in between matters. And so if we go back a little bit, we understand what he means when he makes this statement, the body is dead because of sin. If you're in Christ, your Christ is in you. Romans chapter 6, he says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What do you think he means by walk in newness of life? He means walk in the Spirit. That's why Paul uses those three phrases, walk in the Spirit, walk in newness of life, and then in Romans 7, what did he say? In the Spirit, in the newness of the Spirit. He just marries those two terms together, walking in newness, walking in the Spirit. In the newness of the Spirit, it's the same thing. If we've been planted or united with Jesus in death, he's not talking about literal death. This is not a bodily death, even though he uses that phrase, the, the death of the body or the death of the flesh. He's not talking about a physical death, but a death that occurs when newness happens. There's a death. And what's the death? What's being put to death? The carnal man. That's what's put to death. That's why he says, the carnal mind's enmity with God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. But he said, you're not in the flesh. Why? Because you died to sin. That's not you. You're not carnal. You're not sold under sin. You've been freed from sin through Jesus Christ. So he says, reckon yourselves indeed dead unto sin, but alive to God. Romans 6, 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. So I made a statement earlier about this whole yo-yo thing. And what I mean by that is in grace, out of grace, in grace, out of grace, in grace, out of grace. You don't see that taught. So what's the truth? The truth is this. A man that's walking in the spirit, he's going to commit sin. But I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't love sin. He hates it. A man who's walking in the spirit hates sin. He may commit it, but he hates it. And he's fighting it. He's struggling against it. He doesn't give in. He's walking after the spirit. And the mind is toward the spiritual, not toward the carnal. If we find ourselves committing the same sin over and over and over, and we just give up, and we go, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to give in to it. That's not walking in the spirit. When we just give in and live in sin, yeah, we're departing from God. It's not that he let us go. We're leaving him. We're choosing sin as king. That's why he uses the phrase reign. Don't let sin reign. Don't let sin be your king. Jesus is king. Walk in the spirit. 
Galatians 5, 16, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. <clears throat> and these are contrary to one another. That literally means they oppose one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But listen, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. You're not under the condemnation of the law. If you're walking in the spirit, there is therefore now no condemnation. There's no condemnation. There's no slavery. There's no opposition. You walk in the spirit, God is on your side. It's not in and out, in and out, in and out. No, we walk in the spirit, God cleanses our sin. Doesn't mean we take sin lightly. In fact, it's the opposite. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. To who? Not to the body. You ever heard somebody say, I owe myself this? No, you don't. <laughs> you don't owe yourself anything. You're a debtor, but not to you. You're a debtor to God. You're not a debtor to yourself to live after the flesh. You hear people say, that all the time, well, I owe it to myself to make myself happy. And usually when people say that, it's towards something they know is not right. No, that's the wrong way of thinking. If you live according to the flesh, listen, you will die. Who's he say that to? Christians. He's writing this to Christians. And he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, listen, they are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. I'll tell you something else that wasn't realized. Sonship. We have sonship. That means... Whether you're a female Christian or a male Christian, you're an heir. An heir of God. An heir with Christ. If, there it is again, indeed, we suffer with him. That we may also be glorified together. We're God's children. God looks at us as children. I think sometimes people think God looks, looks at us like we're his little puppets. And he's just puppeting us around and laughing about our misfortunes. Shrugging his shoulders about our mistakes. No, we're his children. And when his children walk in the spirit, when they mess up, you know what God does? He has compassion and kindness and he helps and he aids. He assists. It's important we understand that relationship that we have. Not that just God is our father in a spiritual sense, but he's our father in reality. He's not just our father, he's Abba, father, daddy. He is our father. He's not looking down waiting for us to mess up so he can strike us with lightning. It's not who God is. Under the law, 
That was the fear that people lived under. Notice, notice what he says. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage. What do you think he's talking about? He's talking about the old law. He's talking about the description he just gave in Romans chapter 7. That spirit or that disposition, if you will, of bondage again to fear. We're not supposed to be driven by fear. Now we're still supposed to fear God, but that should not be the motivator in our life. Listen to what Paul said in Titus chapter 2. This will be our last passage of the evening. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now listen, teaching us. What does God's grace teach us? That denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present time. What teaches us that? I'll tell you what teaches us that. God did not justify us just to justify us. He justified us, then he sanctified us for his purpose. And the gifts that God has given us should overwhelm us with gratitude. And because we understand who we are, that we are sons and daughters of God, that reality of God's grace and mercy should motivate us every day to walk and live in the Spirit. Look at verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I want to pause right there for a moment. I want to ask you a question. I hope you're all listening. I want to ask you a question. Does the thought of Jesus Christ returning tonight, does that overwhelm you with fear or joy? I want you to think about that. How do you feel about the return of Jesus? If you're God's child and you're trying to walk in faith and you're living for Jesus Christ, it should bring you hope and joy. That should be a peaceful thought. Because we're not under the law. It's not, a, it's not an arrogant thing to say that. This is about trusting God and trusting God's grace and trusting his righteousness and Jesus' sacrifice. Paul never talked about the coming of Jesus' man. I hope Jesus don't come today. He assured the Christians, be looking for Jesus. Hope in the return of Jesus. Because Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us to free us from slavery, from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Zealous for good works. I'm afraid sometimes people read Romans 7 and they think that what Paul is saying is holiness is impossible. I'll tell you what Romans 8 is saying. Holiness is absolutely possible. Absolutely possible. But not without God and not without Jesus Christ. See, when we're walking in the flesh, you know how God looks at us? As holy. That's how he looks at us. We're holy. 
But if we're not following him and we're following the flesh and we're fulfilling the desires of the flesh and we're living in that way, what did Paul say? He said, if you live in the flesh, you will die. You got to follow Jesus. And this chapter makes that very, very certain. Friends, tonight, if you have a need, we offer the invitation of Jesus Christ. If you've never experienced the goodness and grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ, and would wish to do that tonight and to be baptized into Christ, we want to encourage you to do that. There is no condemnation in Christ, but there is condemnation outside of it. If you are in Christ, maybe you have been minding the things of the flesh. Maybe you need strength or comfort or any other blessing from God. God knows our hearts. He knows our struggles. And he wants us to come to him when we have those problems. If, the, we have, if you have a need tonight, come have a seat on the front as we stand and we sing.